This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 312, and this is the Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it's Daniel Glass, welcoming you to another episode of the podcast. In the last episode, I spoke about preparation and the word, the concept, how this applies to us in life, in our daily moves, in our long-term goals, what, what this topic is all about. Lots of ways of looking at preparation as a means of tackling life, which is sort of this little mini-series that I've started And today I'm going to go a completely different direction when we think about tackling life. And I'm going to start it all off with this little piece of audio. Hey! Hey! Ladies and gentlemen, I think I just broke my leg. I think I really broke my leg. So look, I'm going to go to hospital, but then I'm going to come back. So in case you didn't pick up who that was speaking, that was, of course, Dave Grohl from the rock band The Foo Fighters. And uh, Dave Grohl is kind of a hero of mine, as he is a hero of a lot of people, in that uh, the way that he dealt with this situation, which was a huge uh, Foo Fighters concert, the beginning of a big tour in Gothenburg, Sweden, and in the second song, he fell off the stage and broke his leg. Um, And instead of it being a terrible tragedy, uh, canceling the concert and and eventually canceling the tour, Grohl literally had them bring the microphone down to him. He's he's fallen into the the pit, you know, probably fell off an eight-foot-high stage. Uh, I'm going to post the video that goes with that audio clip so you guys can check out the whole sequence of events. He promises the audience that he's going to get this taken care of, and he comes back on stage within an hour with his ankle in a cast, and he finishes the show. That, my friends, takes balls of steel. (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, uh, not something you see every day. Uh, Not the typical response to... uh, such a uh, an emergency happening, a, a tragic uh, event like this happening. And, uh, you know, what I love about Dave Grohl is that this is not just uh, a one-off incident. This is how he deals with life. Life threw him a serious curveball, and he turns it into a home run. So what happens? Yeah, the Foo Fighters cancel a couple shows. They go and regroup, but then they come back later in the year, and I'm pretty sure this was last year, 2015, when all this went down, although I'm not super sure of my dates, but it was fairly recently. And so what does he do? He designs a huge new piece of stage scenery, which is a throne, like a ridiculous over-the-top throne that has guitar necks sticking out the side of it, the Foo Fighters logo behind him. And he does the rest of the tour, again, a few weeks 
time off to design all this, but he does the, 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 the rest of the tour from this throne with his leg in a cast elevated. He rocks out like crazy while sitting in this throne. And not only that, but the throne, uh, during one part of the show, drives out into the, you know, the catwalk, you know, these arena bands, stadium bands. Now it's very hip to have these kind of catwalks so they can walk out and be among the crowd, um, little runway. So the, the, the throne extends out there and he does some of the tunes out there. But he doesn't stop there with his approach. In other videos from this tour, and I'll post a couple of these, uh, he just stops in the middle of the show, has a fan come up and play a tune on drums. And I, and I don't know how planned this was. I think he just sort of said, oh, well, I don't know. Let's see if we can get a drummer up here to play a tune. And there's a video of a guy who plays one of their early hits. I think it was from the first album. It's not the hardest song or the fastest song in the world, but it's great. It's great. He's winging it. And that is the title of today's podcast. You know, tackling life head on, winging it. In other words, when, you know, what do you do? What do you do when something unexpected happens? How do you deal with that? There's another great piece of Dave Grohl footage from the tour where he brings this guy up. Well, so this is cool. Eventually, as the tour progressed, he would get on his crutches. He would hobble out to the front, and they would do an acoustic set. So that he would hobble all the way to the end of the catwalk. And so he's really in the middle of the audience, say, halfway down the floor seats. And... So he would do this acoustic set with the two two guitar players from the band behind him. All three of them are playing acoustic guitars, which is cool anyway to have the acoustic breakdown as part of your big arena show. But during these acoustic sets, he sort of it's it's amazing to me because even though, you know, he's a big rocker, fist in the air, let's get the whole arena, the whole stadium going, he treats this segment of the show as if it is as if he's in his living room. And just whatever happens, happens. And so he's doing uh, the song There Goes My Hero, which is from the Foo Fighters' second album, The Color and the Shape, which I love. And he notices that there's a guy who's pretty drunk and crying in the front because he's overwhelmed. Here's, here's Dave Grohl doing the song that he loves. And the guy is named Anthony. And he, and he brings Anthony up on stage and has Anthony sing the whole song with him. And I guess this kind of stuff happens... At, at other arena shows, but I don't know. You know, Dave Grohl is like one part preacher, one part rock star, one part, you know, he, he's also very comforting. He gives everybody hugs. He makes them feel good. You know, and I guess I guess this kind of stuff does happen, but I, I know that in general today, big rock shows or big pop shows, big, you know, arena shows are very highly programmed affairs. Everything is pre-programmed, you know, the dance moves, the lights, the, 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 the backing tracks that the band plays along with, all of that is, has, 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 you know, been predetermined, and very rarely do bands waver from the formula, shall we say. And so it's so refreshing to see someone like Dave Grohl, like the Foo Fighters, uh, just winging it. Whatever happens, happens, and they go with it. And, um, you know, I, I am incredibly impressed by this because it, you know, it's, it's something to me that is a hugely important part of growing as a human being and becoming 
a, a better person. And so last time I talked about preparation and all of those things about preparing yourself for what might come. Well, you can also learn and grow from dealing with life as it happens. So I want to switch gears and tell a couple of other uh, little stories from my own personal career that um, have really helped me to grow as a musician and as a human being in, in a lot of different ways. And the, the first story I'd like to tell goes back to around the year 2004, 2005. I can't quite remember. I released a an album in 2003. Um, it was the first album that I led uh, and produced and put together. Uh, it, was, it was a little trio I had. So the band was called the Daniel Glass Trio. It was an unusual trio. It was vibraphone, bass, and drums. And we recorded this funky little record called Something Colorful. And I was real gung-ho. This was sort of a period where the swing resurgence had kind of uh, petered out to some degree. So I was hustling and looking for other things to do and, and other projects to be a part of. And I thought, well, you know, why don't I lead a band and see what that's all about? Anyway, the record comes out. I'm hustling and getting stuff happening in L.A. There was a great club in L.A. for a period of time in the first decade of the 2000s called The Knitting Factory, which was the L.A. outpost of a club that had started here in New York, where I, where I now live. Um, it, was a, it was a great combination of having more mainstream acts, and then they had a second venue in the space called the Alternate Lounge, where they did a lot of really cool experimental stuff and smaller things, and, and they really um, uh, allowed for some wonderful music to be, uh, to be heard in, in a nice venue. It was a nice room, great PA, great lights, you know, great place to, to do stuff. So I connected with the booking people at the Knitting Factory, and I managed to put together a one-month residency for my trio. It was once a week for four weeks. And the, the idea was that I had a DJ, uh, Greg from Hepcat, one of their singers who knew a lot about classic music and old school. Uh, the band Hepcat was a great kind of old school, like Royal Crown Review was an old school swing approach. Hepcat was an old school ska approach, and they took their, um, their inspiration from the early uh, earliest years of ska music, ska uh, and rock steady music, uh, Jamaican uh, styles that maybe I'll do a podcast about that in the future. Anyway, Greg, Greg was a, a good friend of mine and, um, and he helped me to, to, to organize this. So he DJed my trio played my jazz trio. And then, uh, we had another act on that was either a comedian or a performance artist or something that was uh, akin not exactly another band, but something that would, would tailor the night. So it was Daniel Glass curating a night at the Knitting Factory. Well, I promoted, I made postcards, you know, I really busted my butt to get this off the ground. And the first show, I walk in, and the vibraphone player, Eldad Tarmu, informs me that the bass player, who I won't name at this moment, has broken a bass string. And... Now, this is not an electric bass string. This is an upright bass. And if you know anything about upright basses, that doesn't happen very often. Um, they're very heavy-duty strings. They're very expensive to buy a set. I think they're 80 or or 100 bucks to buy a set of strings. And it's not something you expect to happen on a jazz gig ever. In fact, this is probably the only time I can imagine that, um, that I can remember in my experience that a bass string has broken. So for whatever reason, he was changing the string or something happened, the string broke. And before I even got there... He left. He just left. And, you know, here's a gig I've been promoting. I put together a tremendous amount of work had gone into it. This was a big night for me. And, you know, there was a lot of people there. 
he split. And I, I couldn't figure out for the life of me why he wouldn't try to come up with some other kind of solution. But his solution was, I'm pissed, my string broke, I'm leaving. So I was faced with two options, either cancel the show or go on as a duo and see what the hell would happen. And that's what we did. Uh, I had a couple of Jack and Cokes, and we just plunged into the breach. And it actually was a great experience because, you know, we learned that we could make music happen. Uh, We could make cool music happen. It wasn't as organized as the trio. We did some improvisational stuff. We did some of the songs. But we went for it. And that was a great learning experience because it helped me to deal with you know what? The answer is not in action. The answer is not to run away. The answer is to step up and make it work somehow in the same way that Dave Grohl did. Another great example was from a few years earlier when Royal Crown Review was in its, in its uh, when I recently joined the band. And we were doing an event called the Blessing of the Cars, which was a very cool event they used to have in Los Angeles in the, in the, at least in the mid-90s. I can't remember how long it went on for. Maybe it's still going on. And they would have all of these um, vintage car owners would bring their cars to a park, and they would have some kind of hipster clergy person who was ordained but was also in the scene. It was like really the, the rockabilly greaser scene and, um, you know, the guys that were into the chop-top old vintage cars and, and uh, um, you know, that Southern California kind of uh, lowrider, you know, in a way, kind of scene, which was great. It was, it was super cool to be part of all that retro. Everybody was dressed retro. Everybody would get together in a park, and they would do um, have a big event, and they would always have a concert that was part of that, and a bunch of bands would play. So we were the headlining band. About two songs into our set, the entire PA blows. It's an outside event. So, you know, they're dealing with generators and whatever else, and it was, you know, they didn't have the money for a, a huge fancy PA company to come in. So we're faced with two options. We either stop playing or we keep going. And guess what? We kept going and we ended up playing an acoustic set. Um, We figured out how to make it work. Uh, I picked up the brushes, you know, uh, the guys with amps. I'm not sure if they still had electricity, but um, the singer just sang. And it ended up being a really unique and special moment. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's dealt with these situations and made it work, winged it, as it were. But again, this was a great experience because it taught us as a band that we didn't have to, you know, we weren't held hostage by the circumstances of the situation. It made us stronger. And in, and in a way, that, that event helped our band become much more popular. It sort of became the stuff of legend. Oh, yeah, you remember that time, The Blessing of the Cars? The PA went out and Royal Crown Review just played this acoustic set, and it was, in a way, more magical because it was quiet. People had to pay attention to what was going on. You know, we were, I don't even think we were on a, much of a stage. So all of a sudden, it became this very intimate thing, you know, similar to, to Dave Grohl taking a stadium of people and making it a very intimate experience by kind of just doing whatever comes to mind, feeling whatever he feels at that moment. You know, improvisation, I guess you could also call this, but it's improvisation in the face of adverse circumstances. Um, you know, talking more about injuries and, and whatnot, I am harken back to just a few years ago in 2013, and probably not a lot of people know this, but I had surgery on my left ankle. I had, over the years of being a runner and a drummer, developed... Um, 
a cartilage issue in my left ankle, which for those of you who aren't drummers is, and I'm a left-handed drummer. So my left foot is my bass drum foot. And, uh, it was a big problem. And I was slated to go out on a Brian Setzer tour later that year. Um, I, I, the injury had been getting worse and worse. I tried everything other than surgery. Nothing was working. So I had surgery. And what the doctor told me is for two weeks, you got to be on your back. You can't walk on this thing really. And then after that, you'll be on crutches for another four weeks. Well, I had stuff booked. I had a couple of RCR dates booked. I had a couple of clinics booked. And I didn't want to give those up. I didn't want to give those up. I wasn't going to sit back and be okay with the fact that this ankle thing was going to stop me from doing what I wanted to do. And so uh, I ended up... um, after two weeks, I got out of bed. I got on an airplane. I was I was using this strange thing called a kneel-in crutch, which uh, allows you, essentially, it's like a peg leg. So you kneel into it, you strap it to your leg, and you can walk. Uh, it's not very comfortable, and it was definitely a, a trip and a half to do. But what I ended up doing in order to be able to play was I got a lefty double pedal. I'd never used a double pedal before, and I put the slave pedal, I made that my primary bass drum pedal. So I was using my hi-hat foot essentially to play the bass drum. And then I got some, uh, I tried a, a variety of different things. I had, uh, I had a, uh, a, a hi-hat clutch that I got from DW that allowed me to adjust the top symbol of my hi-hat simply by spinning this clutch around. Um, and I also had uh, another kind of clutch that allowed me to open or close the hi-hat um, by just kicking with my foot. Uh, people who play double bass drums know this. You can just stomp your foot on this particular hi-hat. Uh, you can stomp your foot on the hi-hat, and this clutch will grab the cymbal and open it to where you want so that now you can start with an open hi-hat again. So in any case, not to get too technical about all this, but I ended up doing two full Royal Crown Review gigs, uh, did not change the set list at all. Uh, did two clinics where I I did change things a little bit, uh, I, and um, and I used my opposite foot to play the bass drum, and I worked the hi hat in as I needed. So the my right foot played both hi hat and bass drum, um, and I made it work. Uh, I made it work. I dealt with it just like Dave Grohl dealt with it. To me, you know. We should not be defined by the things that happen to us, if and how at all possible. You think of someone like Stephen Hawking, who is crippled by a horrific illness he's had for most of his life, and that has not stopped him from uh, establishing himself as the, you know, the most brilliant astrophysicist, uh, or at least well-known or influential since Albert Einstein, probably. So don't quote me on that. I'm not a physics expert, but I do know who Stephen Hawking is. <laughs> um, you know, so that's what I mean by winging it. When you don't have time to prepare or you don't have the ability to prepare, changing gears in mid-motion. I know um, also Travis Barker, the famous drummer from Blink-182, he played for a number of, he played for an entire tour, I think, with just one arm. He had broken his hand during a video shoot. Um, so, you know, he... I'm not the only crazy person. And there's actually a really famous story 
um, of Buddy Rich, uh, you know, who we think of as, um, you know, the world's greatest drummer. Well, he he was all about winging it. Uh, and I want to read you a quick little article that I found um, where they're telling Buddy Rich stories. And this is one where, uh, well, this takes place in 1946. So... Um, There are a million stories about Buddy Rich, most of them true, and all of them funny or very much to the point about his candor, his intransigence, or his indomitability. But the one that tells it all for me, and by the way, this is by uh, Nels Nelson. Uh, This is on the website philly.com. I'll post this on the show notes. All all these videos of Dave Grohl and other things, photos and stuff that I'm talking about, these are all on the show notes page of my website. So if you go to danielglass.com forward slash podcasts, you can uh, click on whichever podcast episode you want, and you'll see the various uh, media that go along to accompany the podcast. Anyway, Nels Nelson writes about Buddy Rich. Uh, The one story that tells it all for me is the three months or so that he played the drums one-handed. Early one day in 1946, when the bus deposited Rich's first big band of his own, the one bankrolled by his one-time archenemy Frank Sinatra, Bet you guys didn't know that. Buddy Rich started a big band already by 1946. Uh, the The bus deposited him in Dayton, Ohio. The leader decided to kill time playing handball. During the game, he tripped and broke his left arm in three pieces. Two days later, the band opened at Harlem's Apollo Theater. Not an insignificant venue, I would say. Curtain up, and Buddy was at the drums with his arm in a cast and a sling that matched his band uniform. How cool is that? He stepped forward, went into a dance, sang a blues, drummed for dancer Steve Kondos, and then danced with him and climaxed the show with his breakneck not-so-quiet please number, soloing on the drums with his right hand and using one of his feet to atone for the left. Um, Drummer Joe Jones of Count Basie fame watched one of these remarkable feats of showmanship and is said to have quipped, if that arm ever heals, it ought to be broken again. (laughs) I love that. Uh, somebody please break Buddy's arm again so the rest of us have a chance. For some, t- for some three months thereafter, until the cast came off, Rich did not miss a performance. So, you know, there you go, dealing with it. We all deal with it at our different levels, um, but not to be something uh, to stop you. And I think the ultimate example of this, you know, idea of somebody dealing with a physical injury, and I, of course I'm a drummer, so I'm thinking about drummers, but of course is the Def Leppard drummer Rick Allen. A lot of people make fun of him because he, you know, lost his arm, which I think is pretty stupid, but not stupid that he lost his arm, but that people make fun of him. Um, 1985, car accident, you know, he he lost his arm, uh, and it didn't stop him. He reconfigured his drum set. Uh, he added a lot of electronics. I, he was, I think he was in on the creation of some stuff that different kind of gear that is now in, more in commonplace use today. This is, again, 85, pretty early in the game of triggering and all that stuff. But uh, he figured out a way to, to make it work. And uh, with the support of his bandmates, they had been together since they were all teenagers. Uh, he continues to thrive with the band today and uh, it has not stopped him. So, um, you know, overcoming adversity, winging it either on the spot or with some deft uh, adjustments and planning and you're on your way. Um, the, the Travis Barker, I, I mentioned he played a tour uh, with, with, with a cast on his arm 
for, for th- several months. And I, uh, I like this quote from him. He said, I thought I would never feel comfortable playing my drums again. But actually, if I had to, I could go on like this. So he made the adjustment, and then he felt comfortable with it. We're adaptable, people. We're adaptable. So adapt. Adapt. If something goes wrong, just adapt and find another solution. All right. So I'd like to broaden this conversation a little bit more and talk about other kinds of maybe what we might call happy musical accidents that, again, were unexpected things that ended up having a a large effect on on music in general. And again, because I am a drummer, I apologize. I'm sure if you are not a drummer and you're listening to this podcast, you'll have similar stories that that you have uh, heard um, uh, regarding other instrumentalists and how they've dealt with these situations. You see guitar players without arms playing, you know, some pretty amazing stuff. But um, this hap- these happy musical accidents all relate to drummers. Um, this story is about Bill Bruford, the famous drummer who played with Yes, of course, and then later on when he left Yes, he ended up with King Crimson for many years and has a strong association with that band. And I was a big fan when I was in high school and college of King Crimson, um, and one of their favorite albums of mine was an album called Red. And uh, the album opens with a song called One More Red Nightmare. Um, let's listen to just a little bit of the opening right now. blew me away about the opening of this song was the weird sounding cymbal effect thing that he had going on and today in 2015 we have you know cymbal stacks and all kinds of sound effect type cymbals but this record was made in 1974 they didn't really use that kind of stuff and i read an interview uh with bill bruford at some point along the way and he said yeah you know this i found that cymbal in a rehearsal studio or recording studio right when we were getting ready to do this record red and it was the ugliest nastiest funkiest cracked beat up broken sounding cymbal i had ever heard in my life and so we said yeah let's throw it into the to the mix and i think if you can ask any king crimson fan or heavy bill bruford fan out there uh, and they will know that song they will know that crazy sound and probably like me a lot of them are wondering where did that come from so it's a happy accident and it's incredibly distinctive what came out of that happy accident um and i have to say that that story inspired me because when i joined royal crown review we got signed to warner brothers we're going to make our debut record with ted templeman the legendary ted templeman producing he had produced Uh, the first five Van Halen records, uh, all the famous Doobie Brothers records in the 70s, Little Feet, Van Morrison, I mean, the list goes on. Ted was a legend, and wow, were we excited to record with him. And those two albums we did with Ted on uh, Warner Brothers were great experiences. But the same thing happened. I I had a China symbol that I was, that I had been using for a while in the band, and um, I used it on our signature piece, Hey Pachuco. Um, and uh, every time, you know, the band went, bow, you know, that was the whole theme of this song. Bow, 
bow. And if you know that tune by Royal Crown Review, that that bow is kind of um, emblematic of of that song, and 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 it sort of every band of the retro swing movement kind of followed and they had some song that would go brown <laughs> so and we'd go hey you know but uh i accentuated this big hit with this china symbol well by the time we got to the studio to record this album and record this song that symbol was really beat up cracked i think i actually had taken a tin snips and cut some pieces out of it which is often what drummers will do to um get their symbols to sound you know, to stop a crack, that's what I should say. So if your cymbal starts cracking, you cut a piece or pieces out of it. And that tradition goes back a long way to, to uh, in the history of drummers. But um, anyway, this cymbal was just a piece of crap. But I had still been using it because I didn't have money to buy another cymbal. And Ted said to me, that sounds killer. We're going to use that on the recording. And guess what? Hey, Pachuco kind of became our signature song. Our version of it, you know, that particular version of it was used in a lot of different, you know, soundtracks and uh, commercials and all kinds of other places. And so, again, that almost that funky, happy accident, that funky sound that's so unique ended up kind of establishing the band's signature sound. So great story. Another great story about cymbals is uh, Bobby Morris, the drummer from Louis uh, Prima's band. And Bobby was with Louis Prima from 1954 to 1960 in Las Vegas. It was sort of the key period when Louis Prima, who had been a big band leader back in the 1930s and 40s, more traditional style big band leader, retooled his sound and his look and his band and ended up rebranding himself completely uh, and most of the Louis Prima that we're familiar with, the classic Jump Jive a Whale and Just a Gigolo and all those tunes, Oh Marie, uh, that came from that period. And Bobby Morris was Prima's drummer between 1954 and 1960. And he told me a story. He's, I interviewed him, uh, and that interview is in the book I did with Steve Smith, which is called The Roots of Rock Drumming. And in Bobby Morris's interview, he's the first interview because Louis Prima in the 50s, even though he was kind of a throwback guy, he was a guy who goes back to the to the 1930s, this retool band was a big part of the emerging sound of rock and roll, and that's why we talked to, to his drummer in the roots of rock drumming. But Bobby Morris, the drummer, talked about finding a cymbal in his brother's backyard in Las Vegas. Uh, he was just getting involved with Prima, looking around for the right sounds. They were trying to figure out their band sound, what that was going to be about. And his brother said, I got this old ride cymbal that we didn't like, and we buried it in the backyard. I kid you not. And they dug this cymbal up. Old, again, funky thing, you know, nothing new, nothing fancy or shiny. And he and he put it on, and he ended up going to that cymbal on the big kind of solo sections of the Louis Prima songs. Now, for those who and you know who know that Louis Prima sound, they would do this thing called the Prima shuffle on all the verses. And this was sort of uh, 
um, what they would play on the verse. It was like a boogie-woogie style shuffle, very tight, very closed, no backbeat. But then when Sam Butera, the sax player, who was the guy who had put that band together for Louis, um, when he would go to his big honking saxophone solo, Bobby would, bam, go up to this ride cymbal and lay in these heavy backbeats. And Bobby told me part of the reason of the prima band success was this cymbal. He said drummers all over. He would go to L.A. to do sessions, and famous drummers like Alvin Stoller and Shelly Mann, guys like that, um, would, uh, would Nick Fatul would come up to him and go, what is that symbol? Where did you get that symbol? That symbol sounds amazing. You know, so again, the symbol becomes a part of the sound. The sound becomes legendary. Uh, and you can, you can, when talking about sound, you could take this same kind of happy musical accident concept and talk about uh, Phil and Leonard Chess from Chess Records in Chicago or Sam Phillips uh, from Sun Records in Memphis. And these little independent labels um, came up in the 1950s. They didn't have very good equipment. Um, They didn't have uh, fancy budgets to hire artists. And the kind of artists they were recording were not mainstream artists at all. And And I could probably do a whole entire podcast about independent music labels. I have a whole chunk about independent music labels in my, uh, in my, in another of my books, the commandments of early rhythm and blues drumming, where I talk about really the model for the independent movement, uh, independent record label movement came about in the, in the, the forties and really in the fifties, because for the first time you could afford studio gear, but maybe it wasn't all of that fancy. But what happened as a result was that these, you know, black rhythm and blues acts, again, this is very underground stuff, or these kind of wild country and rockabilly acts uh, in Memphis, Sam Phillips, rockabilly, the beginnings of rockabilly, they, they, they were winging it. They were using what they had and coming up with something that in the end became iconic. Um, the chess record sound, Muddy Waters, uh, Little Walter, uh, you know, and then eventually artists like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley all recorded at the chess studio. And the funky sound of the slapback reverb that they were able to come up with, um, you know, was unique. It is unique. When you hear a chess blues record, it stands out because of the sound. When you hear what Sam Phillips did at Sun, same thing, he used slapback reverb. He created the sound of rockabilly, which then became very influential in the sound of rock and roll. Um, this idea of this kind of reverb, you know, and that's an iconic American music sound that has influenced countless generations. Now I taught the weeping willow how to cry. And I showed Today, people still will go back to that sound, put that slap back on the vocal here to come up with a particular thing. So again, happy musical accidents that become uh, enshrined as this is the way things are done. And by the way, when artists like Johnny Cash uh, or uh, Elvis Presley left Sun and would go, uh, Johnny Cash went to Columbia, Elvis went to RCA, um, 
So these were major labels of the time that had big budgets, big studios, fancy gear. They tried to replicate that sound of Sun and couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because there was that magic, you know, from that came from winging it. Um, one other great example of another studio in a studio band is Stax, you know, the famous uh, Stax Volt record label in um, Memphis. Of course, some of the greatest uh, soul music came out of there in the very early 60s. Booker T and the MGs, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, uh, Carla Thomas, of course, later on, Isaac Hayes, the staple singers, uh, all emerged from Stax. And the house band was Booker T and the MGs for a lot of these of these acts. Uh, and I, I read a fantastic book about the story of Stax, which I'll put in the show notes. But one of the things I learned from this book was that Stax, the original Stax studio was built in an old theater. And the band would sort of be on the stage, I guess. Um, but the the what was strange about it was the long shape of the room. And, uh, you know, normally most recording studios are sort of enclosed and smaller spaces or their spaces divided up into a number of booths. And, you know, maybe you've got the headphones and you're hearing everything in an immediate way. Well, the, 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 at Stax, they, there was this delay that happened because of the size and the shape of the room. So that, the way the musicians heard stuff, and they, I don't think they were using headphones, they they heard stuff in a delayed way. And it, this delay of sound uh, caused them to play in this very laid-back manner. So again, dealing with the conditions that life throws you, you end up creating something that is a signature sound uh, of, of, of what Stax records are all about. So, um, you know, of course, that mixed with the individual musicians, their abilities and the way they blended and all that jazz. But it's, a, it's, another, it's another great story. Um, so I want to wrap things up because we could go on about this all day, I'm sure. And I would love for you to send your – you can write in the comments section uh, in the show notes of the podcast uh, on my website um, or send me an email or, you know, whatever you like. But um, share your stories as well. Uh, and, um, but I'm going to wrap up with, with going back to, to where we started, which is with Dave Grohl. And this is just another few minutes, but, um, when, when all this stuff happened with him breaking his leg and watching the tour unfold and seeing how that happened, uh, I went back and, you know, on YouTube, when you end one video, it suggests a bunch of other videos. So I went back and I, I looked at, um, I guess in 2000, either maybe 2013 or 2014, Dave Grohl gave the keynote speech at the South by Southwest Music Conference, which I think is a pretty big deal. The year before that, Bruce Springsteen had given it. For those of you who are not musicians, South by Southwest is an enormous music conference that takes place in Austin, Texas. It's sort of the musical equivalent of the Sundance Film Festival. It started out as a very underground thing. Um, Royal Crown Review played some really wonderful showcases there in the mid-90s. Um, since then, it's it's just ballooned, and it's a really big deal. So you have people like you know, giant rock stars who give the keynote speech. But Dave Grohl starts the keynote speech. He doesn't say anything. He gets a guitar. And um, he has two cassette recorders. And he talks about when he was a kid, how he recorded his first songs that he wrote. And obviously, for those of you who... Maybe some of you don't know Dave Grohl as a drummer. Uh, maybe you only know him as a singer and a songwriter uh, and a guitar player. Um, but, you know, 
he he maybe some of you remember him only as a drummer playing for Nirvana and and for the Foo Fighters. But I mean, the guy has he's got a lot of talent on many different levels. So he starts the South by Southwest uh, talk by playing a part into one cassette recorder. He then takes the cassette out and puts it into a second recorder uh, and drops a new cassette into the first recorder. He then presses play on the first recorder. So it's playing the track he just played and he hits record on the second recorder. So now you're hearing him play a second track and while the first track is playing. Then he takes the second tape that now has his playing of two guitar tracks on it. He puts it back in the first recorder and plays that and then hits record on the second recorder and you're now and records a third track. So essentially he was multi-tracking. This is how he just figured out how to do it on his own as, as literally as a kid in his bedroom. And that's how he starts the talk. Talk about winging it and making it work. He didn't go to school. He didn't take classes in engineering. He had no internet to look up. You know, he didn't have money to buy a, a multi-track recorder. He just figured out a way to make his own recordings. And he then proceeds to tell his life story. And it's a fantastic speech. I recommend it to everybody because he's so down to earth and unpretentious about the way he talks about things. But it's so inspiring because his whole life has been about winging it. And so he tells a story about how he got into punk rock and, you know, at a time in the late 70s when that was not cool, when that was not mainstream, when, you know, if you were a punk rocker and you went outside with a mohawk, you would probably get beaten up. And, you know, um, you, you, if you were going to be a punk rocker, you had to be so into it that you were willing to deal with a, a hell of a lot of abuse from society in general. And, uh, and so, you know, out of that, he gets into bands, he hooks up with the Nirvana guys, the whole Nirvana thing happens. They're rather shocked because that they got signed, that they get signed to a, a fairly large major label deal because, at the time, you know, hair metal is what's happening, the Sunset Strip. Um, suddenly, they come out of left field, and no, isn't, no one is expecting them. Um, so he tells the story of Nirvana, you know, uh, and, and his theme in this is, I just did what I believed in. I just did where my passion took me, and I didn't worry about what was going on in the world, and I had some great success. But the part that I really like is what happened after Kurt Cobain passed away. And, you know, everyone assumed that was it, that Kurt was the genius behind Nirvana. He wrote the songs, he was the singer, he was the lead guitar player, and these other two guys were going to sort of fade into obscurity. So what does Dave Grohl do? He goes into a recording studio by himself, and in two weeks he records the first Foo Fighters album. He plays all the instruments. He sings all the vocals. He tells the story about he would just drink pot after pot of coffee and run between the drums and the, the control room. I mean, he probably had an engineer to help him, but he did the whole thing himself in two weeks. And what did he do? He didn't go to major labels. He didn't use his contacts per se. He made 100 cassettes copies of this new album and just handed them to a few friends again that's mighty ballsy um because there was so much pressure you have to remember when kurt cobain died nirvana was one of the not only the biggest and most important bands uh 
popularity-wise, but they were seen as being have ch- ha- seen as having changed the face of music. I mean, literally, their presence, their introduction, turned pop music into a comp- or rock music, I guess you could say, and made it took it you know a hard right turn into a completely different realm. Here's punk rock, you know, coming out of your know, very raw uh, punk rock inspired music uh in the face of this very processed produced slick stuff that had been going on uh for most of the 80s so it it was a sea change so if you can imagine the pressure on dave grohl it had to have been unbelievable and just like me you know with the broken bass string you drink a couple of shots of jack daniels and you'd go for it and you believe that if you bring excellence, then, you know, and you figure out a way to make it work, that will happen. And, and he did it. And, and so the story of then how these cassettes start making their way through the industry, and it's like, what, Dave Grohl's doing something? He's, and he's singing? And he's playing guitar? And these songs are great? And, oh, my God. And suddenly, same thing as with Nirvana. Comes out of left field. It's a bidding war. And he gets a label, a label deal, and the rest is history. But I really enjoyed um, that story and that speech. And I really enjoyed uh, thinking that Dave Grohl's entire life, essentially what he's talking about here, has been winging it, has just been not trying, you know, in a way, although you could also hearken back to my previous thing, my previous podcast, which is which was about preparation. And, and one of the points I made there is, what if you don't know what you're preparing for? How do you prepare? And you basically, the solution, the, the answer to that question is, you, in your mind, start preparing for whatever it is you want to be in life. You assume that that's who you are, that's where you're going, and you just start doing it. Whether anybody is on your on the same page with you or not. And I think a lot of the most influential people, the most successful people, not only in music, in business, um, you know, in, in, uh, in any field, are the ones who simply, you know, take that road less traveled. And of course, we're getting off the topic of winging it now. But um, I, if you look at the way someone like Dave Grohl has run his life, it's freaking fascinating, inspiring, and, um, you know, make someone like me who's trying to wend my way through life as an artist and uh create my path create my um my journey make my statement in the world uh it inspires me and i hope that it inspires you as have this as has this podcast all right so we'll leave it there again uh if you are interested in hearing uh the uh the different media that i've talked about the 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 clips the youtube pieces go to the show notes page on my website danielglass.com forward slash podcast also make sure to like the daniel glass drummer author educator page on facebook i'm posting lots of cool stuff there every single day thanks so much for listening to the daniel glass podcast if you like what you heard Please make sure to follow me on Facebook at Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. And please make sure to jump over to iTunes and give us a rating on this podcast. Whether you liked it, whether you hated it, one star or five stars, every rating truly helps. We'll see you next time around.